In the Ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. Why exactly is it so difficult to change our minds and what will it take to cultivate a culture of learning to be more open to counter evidence as well as to counter argument? These are questions that I've been trying to think through over the last couple of months, particularly as I continue to watch the state of and quality of public debate online. And I asked Jacques Rousseau, who is a lecturer in critical thinking at the University of Cape Town, as well as my good friend and fellow broadcaster and writer, Reedy Klabi, to engage this question with me. I think that whether or not we make progress dialectically on the key issues of the day, locally and internationally, will in no small part depend on whether or not we can cultivate certain intellectual virtues. And these include open-mindedness, as well as the ability to examine a viewpoint that you thought you were convinced by, but of course, perhaps new experiences or new encounters with evidence hitherto not shown to you might lead you to have a different point of view. Let's explore these issues. Do I struggle to change my mind? It's a very difficult one, Yubi, because I think very hard and deeply about my positions. I don't just arrive at a decision or a position. Of course, that doesn't mean that my instincts are not at play. I do have immediate and instinctive responses to things, but I think that I've trained myself to question myself, to reflect on what am I missing? What are my biases? And it's a safety it's a safeguard. It's, it's, it's a safety thing for me because of the public work that I do. I never want to be caught out as someone who hasn't thought about something. So while I like that about myself and I'm not going to change it, that I reflect very hard and over and over, I go through various scenarios, what could possibly go wrong, what am I missing and so on. So because the process of arriving at a position or a decision or an opinion doesn't just involve my instinct, but it involves thinking it through and questioning myself and putting the spotlight on my position and decision and subjecting it to scrutiny and putting it alongside contradictory views. By the time I decide on something, I may not have taken 10 months, even a day. I can go through that in a day. Because I've thought so hard about it, it's hard for me to just change my mind. I I can't just change my mind after putting in all the work. However, there are moments where the evidence and the facts on the table overwhelm even that rigorous process. And so I find it very easy to change my mind when I'm presented with evidence. When someone I trust truly takes a bigoted view on something, I don't need to debate it. I change my mind about that aspect of of, of their character. So it's hard to to, to say yes or no. It is hard for me to change my mind because I put a lot of thought into making a decision. But it's also not hard because I respect evidence when the evidence evidence is, is, is overwhelming. I do indeed change my mind. So 
when have I ever changed my mind? And again, UB, I didn't rehearse this. I never, I didn't even know this is how I'd answer, but I'll answer it. You know, when um, Helen Zille boycotted independent media in the Western Cape, I interviewed her and we had a fight on air. I remember even asked, asking her, why are you so tender about this and this and that? And she went, I must ask you really, why are you so tender of some shit like that? But Helen was right. Because what independent media ultimately became under Iqbal Suri, the political project, Helen saw it. She called it out. And I could say that she had the privilege of proximity as a premier. She knew what was going on, maybe. But she was right. And so I don't have to hold on to my criticism of her. And I choose her because she, she, this example came to mind. Maybe it's the 10 babies, I don't know. It just came to mind. And in the interest of being authentic and sincere, that's what I put on the table for you. But I'm actually happy that that's the example that came to mind because Helen is so unsavory lately, unhinged. It feels good for me to be able to say she was right on something and not be swayed by my antipathy or disagreement with her right now. So yeah, I, I, I don't struggle with, with, with that at all. Um, have I ever also changed my mind when it's been a test of my morals and my values and so on? Mm-mm, Yubi, I, I, maybe it's those checks and balances that I, I assiduously apply and bring to the process that I seldom regret positions that I have taken, but it doesn't mean that I've not, I've not, I've never not regretted positions that I've, that, that I've taken. And I suppose the fallout from that is made up by the fact that I have no problem revisiting a situation and saying, you know, I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. But yeah, I, 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 I do change my mind. I'm happy to change my mind when the argument is compelling, when the facts uh, are there. I don't have a problem with that. But have I changed my mind at a, at a very deep level? I don't know how deep you want to go, right? Christianity. Yeah, I grew up in the Catholic Church. It wasn't satisfying. I moved on to kind of a born-again setting. And I changed my mind there. And then I became agnostic. And how did I arrive at that? It was through reading, observing the world reading and, and observing the world. That's what saved me. But the dichotomy of being, I recently lost a friend who was a Catholic priest. I loved him so much, so much. And this experience predates him. I think I write about it in Endings and Beginnings as well, that being inside a church, particularly a Christian one, the hymns are familiar. I know every word. 
I know the scriptures even far more than some people who call themselves Christians. I often tease my husband that he loves to sing hymns, but he doesn't know the words. I do. And he, it amuses him that I'm this, because he calls me a heathen, but I'm agnostic. And I know all these things and they stir my spirit. Why do I find belonging in a Catholic church? I grew up there. It's familiar. And when I go to funerals and weddings and the, the hymns and the scriptures, I do have a warmth inside. But I quickly remember why I changed my mind about all of this. And it was about the abuse of little boys by the church and the cover-up. It was the cover-up. I had a confrontation with my parish priest. I said, it's a cover-up. And I couldn't stand that cover-up. That's how I left my church. But now with the death of my very, very close friend, even though I've experienced this reflection on, oh, this is familiar, this is comforting, I can identify, I can recognize. It's the first time in over, in close to two decades, because it was 2003, I think, when I left the church, that with the passing of my friend, Father T, I thought maybe I should go back as, as, as my roots, even if I don't believe this thing, even if I have moral aversions to what the church did, maybe I should go because it's some way of belonging. And I love the, 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 some of the rituals and the familiarity and the songs. And I realized that, no, actually, I'd be doing it for the, for the wrong re reasons. It would be to hold on to a part of my friend that was his life. He was a fucking Catholic priest. That was his life, even as he was dying of lung cancer. Giving mass meant a lot to him because he said he feels alive and healthy when he gives maths, even when he was breathless with his rotten lungs, never having smoked, comrades runner, fit and healthy and all of that. But the point is, I, I wouldn't be able to silence my convictions even for someone that I love like him. So I don't know how that answers your question. Do I find it hard to change my mind? I suppose I've proven my first point, that because I thought about it, I reflected on how the church had failed, and it was incongruent with what I thought or I think I stand for. I therefore can't go back and even grant them this charity, even at a moment where there is an alignment, there is history, there's nostalgia. So, yeah, maybe I do struggle to change my mind, but I don't think I do. I think I make the decisions carefully and with deliberation. And so I can't just be swayed by the fever of, this, of the hymns and the moment. But in situations where there is evidence that overwhelms my convictions, I, I don't struggle at all. And I don't struggle to say I was wrong. And I thank radio for that because every day for three hours in a career that's spent on radio at least, 12 years on 702, three years on KFM, that's 15 years. Add the television side. You will never get by without the ability to say I was wrong. New evidence was presented in front of me and I changed my mind. So I can, but 
on certain things because I think so deeply about them. I check all sides. You can't just come to me with, oh, you're so stubborn. You always have to argue. You've got to give me something better than that. I can't just change my mind on, on principles, on principle. Yeah. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Jacques Rousseau is someone that you know is often in conversation with me on many broadcast platforms, and both of him and I have a deep love of philosophy. He is still an academic engaged in critical thinking in particular, and um, we both desire for the quality of our public discourse in South Africa and internationally, the world over, to be as good as it possibly can be. And it's not to say that we get it right ourselves. It's what's interesting about certain patterns of poor ways of reasoning is that even experts in logic and in argumentation, theory, and practice can make the very same mistakes that they often lecture on. So when we are talking about how to be better at reasoning, we're also checking in with ourselves and reminding ourselves uh, at you know, what is best practice and what it is that we need to focus on. Jacques, thanks so much for coming on the platform. It's a pleasure, Eusebius, and uh, greetings to everyone who's listening to us. So today's topic, I hope people will find really interesting. I said to you in preparation for it, that very often people ask me, do you ever change your mind, Eusebius? You seem to be so good at articulating why you hold certain positions and, and digging your, your heels in when people challenge you. Do you ever change your mind? And then I thought, well, seemingly simple topic. Let's have a fun discussion about changing your mind. Do you find that your training in philosophy has made you hard-headed about revising your views? Or have you been open over the years to seriously examining whether you should hold on to your beliefs and your convictions? So there's, a, there's a positive and a negative response to this. And, and the positive ones, as you'd know, people who have been trained in these things have typically come to beliefs after lots of self-examination already. So critics... Have got the cut, have got the things the wrong way around sometimes in their in their estimation of us as as hard headed and stubborn and so forth, because they haven't seen all the preparatory work that's gone into coming to a very well thought out conclusion. And uh, the negative side, and this is what my partner will tell you, and many of my friends might tell you, and perhaps what you hear as well, is that <laughs> because we are skilled at argumentation and reasoning, we are so uh, better equipped, so well equipped to fob off criticisms and to maintain our smugness and hard-headedness. So, so the very things that got you to a position where you putatively at least have well-considered views allows you to be uh, smug about them and not change them. So uh, it's a tricky one. So I think that's why it will be good to give a couple of examples. I'm happy to share because I've been thinking about this for a very long time in preparation for this conversation. And there are two, but I'll give one and we can take turns. I don't know if you thought of examples in pre preparing for it, or maybe some will come to you extemporaneously, which is another skill that we get, that we get from, from um, philosophy and analytic philosophy in particular. So mine are both two from when I was graduate students, and these are positions that have changed over the year. Uh, the first is that um, we, we had a big debate in the Oxford Union about whether David Irving, the Holocaust denialist historian, should be allowed to come and speak. And my position was, let the guy speak. Of course, anti-Semitism is unacceptable. Of course, what he has to say is evidence insensitive. But the best way to deal with him intellectually and morally is to let him have the podium, let him speak for five, seven minutes, and then to debunk the content of his speech and embarrass him intellectually, academically, and also morally and politically. And I would sever the opportunity to do exactly that. 
and many people were opposed to the Oxford Union inviting him and they wanted him to be what we would now call no platformed and the invitation to be revoked. And it was a big debate about whether or not that should be done. I think in retrospect that I was wrong, but I'm not sure whether now I think he shouldn't be invited. And it's interesting, Jacques, because sometimes we think about positions in binaries. Are you for or against? So two things for me happened. I no longer think that my view as a graduate student was obviously correct, but I'm also not sure whether the opposite view is correct. I now am genuinely uncertain. And the reason why I'm uncertain is because I think that there was a key part of my interlocutor's position that I did not take sufficiently seriously. And it was the following, that when someone speaks, even if you know you've got lined up good responses to the bullshit that they're about to speak, letting them speak the bullshit into the public space may still amount to triggering in the survivors of that horrific act or event or series of events, the Holocaust, traumatic memory and experiences. And you will simply be re-inscribing a kind of violence that comes with the speech acts that this historian will be performing. Now, I don't know whether that is sufficient to not let the guy speak, but what I do know is that I don't think I gave due consideration to that factor. Yeah, that's a very good example and one that I can relate to uh, having been the chair of the Academic Freedom Committee at UCT when we invited Fleming Rose, the uh, person who was the cultural editor of Ulan's Poston, as some listeners would know when they published those uh, infamous cartoons of the prophet. Um, and, and the debates around there and my thinking around there is, certainly resonates with yours. But uh, I'll cite a... a, a Different, but also tricky example uh, to start off for myself. And I, I'd recall that that uh, we once tried to have a similar conversation on the radio. And one of the things that's interesting about changing one's mind is that my responses were deeply impersonal and theoretical when we had that previous conversation. They didn't engage with self-doubt. They engaged with intellectual ideas and doubting ideas rather than things to do with character and morality. And, and that's why I've appreciated the time in preparation for thinking about this, to think about things that are more personal. And the example is this. When I was young, or younger, <laughs> I um, changed my name. I changed the spelling of my surname from the Afrikaans spelling, R-O-S-S-O-U-W, to the French spelling. Now, of course, that was partly philosophical affectation. Um, but the main reason was that I wanted to disassociate myself from Afrikanerdom and Afrikanerhood. Being a white South African, growing up in apartheid, knowing what the Nationalist Party did, and by extension, in my naive mind, what complicity and guilt Afrikaans people in particular, and of course, white South Africans in particular, had, was something I wanted to be distanced from. Now, there's things we can talk about there in terms of white guilt, which I think there should be uh, truckloads of, et cetera. We, we can talk about that, but, but the thing here for me is that in doing so, I went too far and rejected Afrikaans culture entirely, not just the political stuff. So I stopped thinking about Afrikaans as a viable source of good art or literature, of good analysis. Um, I, I shunned it, in a sense. And I had an interesting conversation about five years ago with an Afrikaans friend who took me to task for this and, uh, and argued quite persuasively 
that I don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, that I'm being reactionary and prejudiced mm. in my attitude towards it. And I still can't say that I, I read Afrikaans poetry, but I certainly am not hostile. You do sing Quiz Compass and hear your, his, hear your heart on a hillbra when you're on the show. Well, this, and that's the other curious thing is that one of the artists who's died that, that struck me most deeply, maybe one of the, I mean, so many people have died in the last few years, but one of the ones that struck me most deeply was Johannes Katkorov, right? And so when that happened, yeah. it's also dawned on me that, hold on, you really have a deep space in your, in your heart, not that there's, you know, I'm using the, the term metaphorically, um, for Afrikaans uh, uh, lyrics and, 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 and artistry and whatever. So I was also just being inconsistent. So I, I was a, a courageous friend, and this is what we all require, said to me, hold on, uh, you, you're performing an idea here. And it's not a well thought through one. It's not a motivated or reasonable one to hold. And uh, Can I ask you a question about feelings, which we often don't speak about as philosophers as well. How do you feel about having revised an aspect of your earlier self? And yeah, I leave it there. I won't explain why I'm asking that question until you've answered. But but at the level of effect, how did you feel about revising an earlier conviction? Oh, completely unmoved. I mean, I, I I'm unfortunate. This is a, a this is actually would be my second example, which I can get to after after perhaps your second. But uh, if we are if we are exchanging in that fashion, but I I, I don't treat myself as a as an object of of emotional um, um, <laughs> significance internally, at least. Mm -hmm. I switch parts out in a sense. I hope your partner's yeah. not listening. <laughs> no, she's, she'll listen when we broadcast it, unfortunately. So we'll have that argument later on. Tell <laughs> you why I asked the question then. Because I was trying to think why we struggle with changing our minds in general. The phenomenon is familiar. I am convinced that with the good, there's a lot of bad that comes with the good of social media, there's some bad that has come with it. And one of the bad things is that we perform conviction to a fault. And we feel emasculated when there's counter evidence or an excellent counter argument presented to a view that we have just tweeted or just put on our Facebook status update. And I wonder whether that's something worth talking about. Why? Should there be an emotional cost involved, if there is one, when, when it comes to changing our minds? And I mean, you, you know that psychology is an important part of understanding aspects of epistemology. Um, when you have a set of core beliefs that you cherish as an individual, you cherish it at an emotional level and not just as some sort of intellectual commitment. And yeah. perhaps part of the reason why we are often stubborn um, and we should be kind to ourselves and understand it and then begin to form better habits after the self-understanding is maybe because the beliefs become inadvertently a very important part of, of, of our sense of self and who we are. And, and perhaps there is, even at an unconscious level, sometimes a sense of, oh my God, who I am will be broken down if I was to concede to my wonderful friend right now that I overreached in my critique of Afrikanerdom. Yeah, that's uh, that's very that's a very important point. And going back to your initial start of of social media and the internet, and a friend of mine 
once joked about a decade ago that we can have either democracy or the internet, but not both, that they're not compatible with each other. <laughs> and I think this is a demonstration of that because it's all turned into a performative game. So I, I need to have very strong opinions and I need to voice them very strongly. And if you don't agree, or if I want to try to tell you that I'm right, then as, as Robert Nozick once said, you, you'd repeat your own argument more slowly and more loudly than the person ends up not getting it anywhere, and then you go off thinking that they're the enemy. Yeah. Whereas by contrast, my view is that, and I don't always stick to this, we, always, we often fail, but my view is that there's far more virtue in epistemic humility, and that I think it is a good thing to revise one's views. And, and I have often failed at that, but I think that is a more important virtue to have in terms of epistemology than having strong opinions and blustering. I think that's right. And I think we'll come in the second part of the conversation to explain to non-philosophers what is the meaning of the phrase epistemic humility, because I think it is critical to where conversations break down, both in the blogosphere and also within the academy and within the political um, arena as well. And I think epistemic humility is precisely the answer to being hard-headed, but we better explain what we mean by that. The other example I had, um, Jacques, was a really interesting one um, involving an aspect of debate about religion, which is another subject area um, that is obviously an important part of, of the work and the thinking that you do as a philosopher. We had a debate in the Oxford Union as well about involving Bishop Jean Robinson, who was an Anglican bishop, and at the time, the debate was raging whether or not it is unacceptable for gay people to be barred from certain leadership positions, and in particular from becoming a bishop. And of course, he was a priest, but um, for some weird reason, there were some members within the Anglican community that thought, that's fine, but um, <laughs> there's sort of a ceiling to leadership if you are gay. You shouldn't be allowed to become a bishop. I can't remember the exact wording of the motion, but it was something to the effect of homosexuality should not be a bar to becoming a bishop. And obviously, um, Bishop Gene Robinson was on the proposing side of the motion, but I was the student speaker opposing it. And many of my gay friends were puzzled. A, why I would take that position. And secondly, why on earth would I take that position as a gay person in particular? And at the time, my reasoning was, well, surely religious freedom includes the right of allowing religious communities hermeneutically to interpret their text that is the basis of their religious convictions however they see fit. And the only way to decide that is not in a secular way, but to use the internal adjudication methods for interpreting scripture internally within your community as a religious community. And that is the authority that counts and not what I think as an atheist or as an agnostic um, or as a Catholic for that matter. And if the relevant authoritative body within the Anglican community says the Anglican position is A, B, C, D, then that's it. I don't think we should interfere. What are the consequences for you as a gay person within that community? Leave. What on earth are you doing there? So that was my position. And I thought that um, it wasn't a homophobic position, that it struck a balance between 
respecting religious freedom and engaging fellow gay Christians on the importance of not allowing yourself to participate in praxis that show the middle finger to your wanting to be gay. I've changed my mind since then. And the reason I've changed my mind is that, again, as with the David Irving example, I think there's a key part of the other side's position that I did not take sufficient cognizance of. And it was the social role that church communities play in the life of members of the church. If you're a gay person, an important part of your socio-psychological or psychosocial well-being, rather, is determined by the bonds that you have formed and the various activities you participate in within your church community. I could not see that point because it's not my lived experience. And I could not give it adequate weight because there was nothing psychically or otherwise at stake for me in a world in which a gay person leaves the church. I mean, after all, I had done that with Catholicism. Now I think to myself, actually, there's a reason why our founding fathers of our constitution were particularly good at allowing private clubs to have certain freedoms, but also to allow the constitution, if we take the legal analog, to apply to people, as we say, horizontally, in other words, between citizens, and not just between the state and citizens, because there are certain fundamental values that we recognize should apply even in the home. Even when I run my BNB on my property, I shouldn't be allowed to discriminate. And then I thought to myself, slowly over the last 10 years, you can't force the church to change its policy. But surely criticizing the church for homophobia is critically important when you understand the consequences for all of the church members. And now I'm not uncertain about my view, as I am with the David Irving position. I now think that it is morally abhorrent for any church community to be homophobic. And I think that if you are agnostic or atheist, you should be very careful uh, to downplay what is at stake for members of a community when they are discriminated against by, by the communities of which they are a part. Yes, I, I, I agree with the concern that you, that you realized was, was key there, which is that it's a self-reinforcing community that, that shares values and that reinforces each other's beliefs. And if homophobia is one of those things that's allowed to be tolerated and even perhaps uh, celebrated or encouraged, that that's an unacceptable cost for society to bear in the name of religious freedom, because we... All of our freedoms are limited in some ways, and this is one way which uh, religion shouldn't be given special dispensation that other people don't have to, exactly. be, to, be, to be bigoted. So my, my second example is also on religion. Well, I mean, I've got many, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin a riff off, off your religion example. Way back in, I don't know, maybe 1990, so before, this, the, before new atheism, which people might have forgotten about already, since it's kind of not being spoken about very much anymore, but even before then, I was part of the more kind of firebrand anti-religious debate. And then when this new atheist movement started up, I joined it wholeheartedly. And I went to international conferences and I knew all of the big names and I spoke at these conferences. And my mission was to destroy religion. And my mission was to, to try to eradicate or at least to be part of the, of the movement that, that did so. 
And of course, that again was, was uh, naive and optimistic and so forth. But over time, and going back to my mention of community a moment ago, if you take the homophobia and things like that out, there's a whole bunch, and I now know very many uh, Methodists here in Cape Town, or, or a few ex-Methodists, some of whom left because of this stuff we're talking about, homophobia and so forth, um, that have reminded me that the church used to be and could be, again, an enormously powerful driver of, of social cohesion and solidarity and to work against um, in, in our case, in South Africa, anti-poor policies, anti-street people policies, etc., places of refuge and comfort and support. And over time, I think the metaphysical stuff, the belief in God and whatever, is going to probably die out on its own in any case. But I don't want to drive that mission at the cost of losing all of the social structure support the church can give, because we sure as hell know that the state isn't going to do it, or isn't going to do it sufficiently. So it really is uh, very unhumanistic for a person like me to want to destroy something which does that job. So I've changed my mind about that in the sense that now I, I see a different role. I, I see a role, and I see a different way of engaging, which involves slow persuasion rather than uh, hostile attempts at, at eliminating the I think that's beautifully put, Jacques, and I think that's so true. Also, there are aspects of our history where the church played an important role. Liberation theology is an example of that. Yes. The mass democratic movement in the 1980s, in particular the UDF, a key component in terms of the different participants and stakeholders is the church was an important bulwark against apartheid. Obviously, the apartheid government itself, as we know, tried to use scripture as a philosophical justification for their racist bullshit. But there were also very important pushbacks from within the church. And if you throw the baby out with the bathwater, to take your earlier phrase, you will, you will be blind to historical truth about the role of many church leaders. Yeah. So just like atheists can be a variety of things, bigoted, nasty, unkind, or you can be a great ally, supportive, progressive on certain questions. There's, there's diversity within the church that I think those of us who are not religious need to, need to recognize. The church can sometimes reinforce homophobia, but church communities can also, as you say, supplement key weaknesses in society and in the state. And I think that's really, really, really important to recognize. And the kind of revision that you're talking about there, I think is, is absolutely fantastic. Really, really, really important. You've, you've mentioned the phrase that seems like a wonderful phrase to, to use at dinner tonight and impress your friends, provided you are all, of course, vaccinated. Otherwise, you should impress them over Zoom. Um, and that is epistemic humility. What is it? It sounds impressive. <laughs> so, so for people who, who don't know much or haven't read much philosophy, first to start, epistemology is the study of knowledge. You know, what do we know? How do we persuade? How do we uh, understand what's a good argument and a bad argument? What is good evidence? What is bad evidence? So, epistemic is the is the description is the adjective for that activity. Um, no, I'm not adjective. My is my grammar failing me here? Is that an adjective? <laughs> anyway, context in which you use it, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and then humility—you'd of course, everyone would know. I mean, that's that's being uh, not being smug, not being arrogant, being receptive to correction, and so mm -hmm. forth. So here, I'm talking about going 
wandering through the world with an attitude of curiosity and the willingness to change one's mind about things. I mean, the, mm. One of the problems we have as, as a species is that there's so much inertia in our beliefs. We, it, it doesn't just require smugness, right? But it's also a lack of curiosity that's a problem. So, so I would encourage both of those to be parts of one's intellectual toolkit, to, to A, be curious, and then B, have this humility whereby one is open to changing one's mind. I'm thinking aloud, so the burden is a burden for you and for me. It's not only for you. How do we cultivate epistemic humility? If we have been in debate clubs, if we have been on Twitter and involved in tours where we, we know we were insincere in hanging on to a position after 20 tweets when counter evidence has been given, in other words, we, we, we listening to the podcast now, we might recognize, fuck, I really was being hard-headed last night when I was debating Jacques on Twitter. He, of course he was right, but I'm not going to say so. I'm not going to eat humble pie. How do we, what can we do to, to practice epistemic humility when there are so many disincentives to be intellectually honest and it might not seem like it, but here's, here's an example of a disincentive. I wanted to put down a DAMP, who's a favorite critic of mine, and I actually respect him intellectually, um, at, a, at, a, <laughs> at a book festival, whose question was, you're saying this now, but let me quote you back five years ago. Of course, I was chuffed that he keeps tabs on me. Uh, which means that he respects me more than he's, than he's letting on. But my response was very simple. Um, and for good measure, because they hate race, I threw in race in that context rhetorically. It wasn't necessary for the point I was making. But the point I was making was, you know, typically when we study dead white men's thought, you know, this was a white guy, we talk about the earlier Jacques Rousseau and the later Jacques Rousseau. And how wonderful it is that there was a turn in his convictions on this question because he was open to the evidence, he had new experiences. He read someone who made him think, oh my God, my teachers were wrong to tell me that Derrida should never ever be taken seriously. And so quoting my anti-Derrida writings from when I was 20 is not embarrassing me in public. All you are demonstrating is that I actually am humble enough to revise my views. But if you go on Twitter right now and you say, Jacques, actually I was really wrong about Afrikaners. Johannes Kerk Oral is awesome. You risk someone saying, you turncoat. <laughs> yes. There's a certain uh, Afrikaans uh, prominent voice on Twitter who is, is also likes to think of himself as French, who, who repeatedly <laughs> over the years calls me a turncoat. Um, <laughs> and he does it in French sometimes, which I can't speak, right? So I say to, I say to my partner, can you please translate this for me? What, what is the insult today? <laughs> anyway, um, to answer your question, and the, the, the virtue of epistemic humility, people, I think, need to realize hinges or rests on a prior virtue. And that prior virtue, and this is perhaps the thing that people should think about first, is that it requires us to recognize that humanity is a collective action problem. What we do affects everybody else's welfare. What they do affects our welfare. And treating us as a, a group of enemy combatants is not a good solution for any kind of future social harmony to resolve any problems that come up. 
keeping kind of like emissaries. We, we're going out as emissaries into a world. Yeah. And we need to be emissaries for compassion and reason and so forth. And you do that not by picking fights. Mm-hmm. And on a practical level, the Twitter sort of exchanges you're talking about, I think those of us who care about the things that you and I do should actually take on a greater responsibility of praising people who change their minds publicly. Mm-hmm. Whether we care about the topic or not, and even if they've changed their mind to something we don't agree with, yes, to just call it out and say, look, there's an example of somebody doing what, they, what we should all be doing. That's a very good point, actually. I think that's a very good point because then we reinforce the fact that it's acceptable. Um, yes. I mean, it's more than acceptable, but in terms of baby steps, that it's acceptable to, to change your mind. I mean, of course, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, as you say, it's virtuous intellectually to reconsider if the, if the evidence changes. And I think that's, that's really, really important. How important is this discussion when you survey the state of debate, not just on social media, but for that matter, even within university spaces, is it a small problem or big problem, our inability to open ourselves up to counter evidence, new experiences, and re-examining in the light of new readings, new evidence, new colleagues that we meet that specialize in different strands than ourselves. I remember when excellent Tom Martin arrived at Rhodes University, and that, that that's a good example of when it worked. Although no one in the Department of Philosophy was explicitly anti-continental philosophy in the silly analytical continental distinction, um, Tom was just such a beautiful, literally and figuratively, ambassador for French philosophy in particular. And, and so you suddenly found yourself open up to questions of being, existence, meaning, all of these things that traditionally you, you would have thought they're not important or Afrikaans departments do it. If you want to be asking those questions, go to Stellenbosch or to Rao kind of thing. Um, how, how much of a problem is it that, that we have these, you know, as, as another philosopher that you know that I like, Lewis Gordon puts it, that we have a, a decadent obsession uh, with our preferred disciplines. And, and I think we can use non-philosophical versions of that, that we are quite decadent in holding on to our general con- convictions, social, political, and otherwise. I think it's a much bigger problem than far too many people realize. Um, I teach over 1,500 first-year students a year, so, and I've done so for the last 25. So I've, I've been able to see, and now remember these are meant to be amongst the most intellectually, I mean, leaving aside questions about access and bars to access and, and all of those things, which are not trivial questions, I don't mean to say that, but leaving that confounder aside, I've, I've seen the evolution of this. And students are now actively hostile towards thought. I read my course evaluations last week at the end of the semester, and I even had a student telling me that my course was evil. Literally, the the word he used, it was evil because it made him think 
and question yeah. things that he doesn't feel he uh, has any obligation or need to think about. It's, it was a really distressing comment to read because of what it said about students and what they expect when they come to university. We are simple people. I'm looking at the note now. We are simple people. It's another one of his quotes. Um, and he doesn't want that to be disrupted. I did not form in my mother's womb just to struggle with difficulty in courses. So, so, so that's... That was I know, it's not a... Yes, yes. Wow. So that's not a representative sample, of course, but I, I see that tendency. And the problem is, I was saying to one of my colleagues, the problem is that it used to be, or not the problem, but an additional problem, is that it used to be the least prepared students who would be more inclined to this hostility to reasoning and thought. It's now the same for the top-end privileged students. And well, I mean, those are separate issues, I know, but for the most privileged students and for the least, because the most privileged students are now just so smug and arrogant that they also don't do any thinking. They're also hostile to thought. So we're being squeezed from both sides and nobody in a sense cares about the topic we're talking about today. So I'm, I'm very pessimistic. I think we're at a serious crisis point with regard to the human project. And COVID-19, I'm hoping is going to be the, the alternative to the kind of nuclear winter or, or alien invasion that I thought might be the thing we need to save us and to make us realize that humanity is the shared collective action problem I was talking about because we, we're drifting in the wrong direction and it's not just social media that shows us this, it's the quality of analysis, it's the quality of students, mine and other people's students. Um, so it's, it's a, it really is a significant problem. Last question, I'll give you two minutes max for it. Why, in the face of that trend, both in the public space as well as in academia, why do you persist with your work other than wanting to opt out of unemployment? <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, I actually no longer have a good answer for that. Um, I keep trying to play the long game and, uh, and be optimistic, but... To be honest, there are often days now where I do it because it's what I do rather than because I believe it can have any effect. And uh, I'm sorry to, to make my final comment so, so dis disheartening and disheartens me to think these things. But I, I, I do it when I feel uh, when it's a good day. I do it because I think it can make a difference. And those days are becoming more and more infrequent, unfortunately. Well, I think the honesty is pretty important. I feel the same as you. I sometimes think to myself, is it worth it? You want to role model analytical thinking, critical thinking, and the costs sometimes seem to be very high when you are faced with just naked refusal to consider different viewpoints. And, and it, it does raise the question of, you know, what, what reason do you have to, to continue? Um, so I grapple with that as well as a, as a writer and as a broadcaster. Uh, but for the moment, we sort of go along and, and see how it plays out. But I think the skepticism, sadly, is justified. On that mm -hmm. very melancholic note, thank you so much for coming <laughs> to the platform. <laughs> Thank you, Yusivis. And then let's just uh, appeal to others who can join the fight to do so, because the burden shared is, of course, a much easier one to bear and more effectively, yeah, more effective Absolutely. combating of these things. In the ring with Eusebius MacKaiser. Eusebius MacKaiser.